The scripture for today's sermon comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter was sent by the hand, hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Kristen. Well, good morning. My name is Steve, and I am one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's good to be with you today as we continue on in our Advent series, Looking with Longing Towards the Coming of the Lord. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, JJ zeroed in on the hope that we have in Jesus. And then last week, David helped us to take a closer look at peace. Well, this third Sunday, we'll be looking at joy. So let's begin by praying, and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord has for us in his word. Father, we're, we're grateful for your word. Lord, your word speaks to us. Your word guides us. Your word changes us. And so, Father, I pray that as we embrace your word today, as we read from the scripture, Lord, that you would give us open hearts, that we would have soft hearts, that we would be able to listen to what you say and then make the changes that you call us to. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly, um, we just ask all these things for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, for our purposes today, I would like to define joy as the experience of great pleasure and delight. So joy is an experience of great pleasure and delight. The Bible talks a lot about joy, mentioning it over 450 times. In order for us to better understand what Scripture means when it talks about joy, I'd like for us to go back and look at the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. That experience of great pleasure and joy permeated that garden. We're going to look at joy in three movements this morning, and we'll begin by looking at joy in the garden. So... When we talk about the Garden of Eden, we're thinking about a place that none of us has ever been and none of us has ever seen. I think there's a temptation for us to look at the garden in a really two-dimensional way. Uh, a naked Adam and Eve, uh, discreetly covered by bushes and trees, um, with, surrounded by animals um, in a, in a park-like setting. And, um, and without just a whole lot to do. They, they were just there. 
And the Genesis account doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about their daily life in the garden, but it does give us a few hints. So there are other clues from other places in Scripture as well. For instance, Genesis 1, verses 16 through 19 tells us, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So some of you were here three or four years ago when we looked at Psalm 19.1, which tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And one of the things that we looked at was the number of stars that we're able to see with our biggest telescopes today. Now that number is a seven with 64 zeros after it. It looks like that, okay? Um, that's seven times 10 to the 64th power and is a greater number of stars than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. Now, Genesis simply tells us God made the stars. But Job 38 gives us a little more detail about that day. As Job was standing literally in the face of a tornado and God was speaking to him out of that tornado, God asked Job this question. Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the angels of God shouted for joy. Now, there's a lot more detail there on what happened on that fourth day of creation. So what would it have been like to hear seven times 10 to the 64th power, number of stars singing together and all the angels of God shouting for joy? So if you're having a problem this morning with a multitude of singing stars, you're probably not going to like it when we talk about a talking snake either. But that's something that actually happened in the Garden of Eden. So on the fourth day, humanity wasn't even on the scene yet. And yet creation was already filled with joy. Well, God began the sixth day by making all the animals. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. So when I was young, we had a TV program that we watched weekly that was called The Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. So some of you are old enough to remember that. Somewhere along the way, it morphed into Animal Planet so that now you can uh, watch it 24-7 if you want to. But I remember watching that over and over and I kept seeing the same scenario repeated. So there'd be a herd of gazelle, which are peacefully grazing on the savanna. A baby gazelle is standing there nursing from its mother. And bam, a lion comes from out of nowhere. And where there had been a baby gazelle, now there's only blood and bone and hair. Okay? Uh, did you know that in the garden, animals didn't devour one another? Uh, in fact, Genesis 1.30 tells us that the animals were all eating plants. So part of what it means when God says it was good is that everything was in harmony. The predator and prey thing was a foreign concept. So there's currently a program on called Unlikely Animal Friends that shows these guys. Okay? Um, the thing that makes this so fascinating to us is that by all rights, 
one of them should be running and the other one should be trying to have the first one for lunch. <laughs> From our perspective, something is broken with these animals. But what they're actually doing is they're acting like their unfallen ancestors in the garden. Well, God finishes out the sixth day by making the first man and the first woman. Listen to these verses. Then God said, let us make a man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, there's a lot that we could say this morning about what it means when God says that, um, that mankind was made in his image. What I'd like to highlight today is this. God gave the first man and the first woman dominion over his creation. So God exercises dominion over the earth, but he doesn't dominate anyone. See, dominion, not domination. Um, since the fall, we don't know much about dominion. We're a lot better at dominating things. So look at Jesus, though. He exercised dominion over gravity, and he walked out on the water twice that we know of. Um, he exercised dominion over the wind and the waves, and he scared his disciples witless. But he didn't dominate those guys. He patiently walked with them for three years uh, while they did and said some pretty dumb things. See, he loved them to wholeness. Well, coming back to the garden, rather than those two newly created people wandering around the garden aimlessly, God gave them work to do. They were commissioned to fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over everything, including the fish and the birds. Fish and birds? See, they, they obviously had some kind of superpowers that we've lost in the meantime. I can't imagine having dominion over fish and birds. Um, but one of Adam's first projects from Genesis 2.20 was to name all the animals. Now, that may have been as simple as one animal of a species uh, presenting itself before him and Adam saying, hmm, what should this one be? I think we'll call this a lion. Now, that could have been what happened there. Or maybe a lion presented himself before the man, and Adam said, hmm, I think Horatio, your name is Horatio, and you, lioness, Penelope, definitely Penelope. See? Um, could have been that way. Um, you laugh, but listen to Psalm 147.7. Talking about God, the psalmist writes, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So you are Algol. You are Rigel. You are Antares. See, he did that to each and every one of that 7 times 10 to the 64th power number of stars. So why wouldn't um, this new man consider each animal and then give it a name? A personal name. That would have been a cause for great joy to give a personal name to every animal in creation. The most amazing verse of all, though, is Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay? I think that has a lot less to do with nudity 
and a whole lot more to do with transparency. See, they were transparent in their relationship with God and they were transparent in their relationship with one another. There was no hiding, there was no shame, there was no self-consciousness about who they were. Now, this is where we really need to start using our imagination because none of us have ever experienced that kind of transparency. Even in our best moments with us, we're struggling with things like, if people really knew me as I am, they would have nothing to do with me. Or, um, uh, you know, if um, I I've got to protect myself because there's nobody else here that's going to do that. See? There was none of that in the garden between the man, the woman, and their God. And that created a level of joy that we can only dream about. Well, in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he tells those early believers that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So righteousness, right relationship with God and right relationship with everybody else. Peace, that shalom that David talked about last week, interwoven human flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, and then joy, that experience of great pleasure and delight. That was literally the standard of living in the Garden of Eden. It was the air that they breathed. It was the water that they swam in. Which brings us to our second movement. Our story now takes a dark turn. Satan questions God's integrity to the man and his wife and suggests that God's intentions towards them were twisted and were not kind. They listened to him and they disobeyed the only negative commandment that God had given them to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible talks a lot about the potter and the clay. So here's a metaphor for you. It was as if God was a master potter and he had fashioned the earth and everything in it as a magnificent piece of pottery, a work more beautiful than anything we've ever seen. The vibrant colors on this piece, see, they would, they would make uh, a glorious Oklahoma sunset look flat and uninteresting. Light literally radiates out of this thing as if it were lit, lit from within, and it would bring tears to your eyes just to look at it. When you touched this piece, it imparted a tingling sensation that reminded you of everything good that you had ever experienced. And the fragrance emanating from it made you want to laugh and cry and love God and love his people more fully all at the same time. The intricate detail on the outside of it was, was so beautiful, it was more than you could visually take in. A magnifying glass would show more detail, and a microscope would show you even greater detail. See, this is a picture of the creation that the man and the woman had been entrusted with. The earth, the animals, their God-ordained mission, they literally held it in their hands. And then they intentionally and willfully dropped it. And it shattered into 10,000 pieces. All that we have ever known of that creation are the broken pieces, the shards of what God did originally. 
one of my favorite places in the world is the Grand Canyon. Um, you, can, you can be there on the rim and you can hear and see people from all over the world there. And there's this phenomenon that happens as people begin to approach the rim and look into the canyon and their voices drop to a whisper as if they just walked into a, a grand cathedral. See, it, it's like a holy place. The play of sunlight in the canyon makes for a breathtaking, ever-changing panorama. See, I could sit there and watch it for hours, and as I do, what I'm seeing is a shard of what God created in that place, a reflection of a reflection of a reflection. Get too close to the edge, the Grand Canyon will kill you. Seventeen people died there last year. See, that was never the Father's kind intention towards that place or towards those people. The fall shattered nature just like it shattered us. Think of the most beautiful person that you've ever seen. So he or she is just a ghostly image of that first man and his wife. Give that person 40 years and that physical beauty will be gone. Just a broken shard of the original glory. Get too close to a lion, and that beautiful creature that we were designed to exercise kind dominion over, it will dominate you, and it'll kill you. The Apostle Paul wrote that all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Well, exiled from the garden, that first man and woman lost their transparency with God and their transparency with one another. The lie that the serpent had told them, you shall surely not die, became obvious for the lie that it was, and they began to die. Um, Adam lived for 930 years. See, God had designed their bodies to last forever, and dying came really hard for them. But it was 930 years of regret, of pain, and of separation from his wife and from his God. Now, we can only imagine what that transparency was like in the garden. Adam knew it firsthand. See, he had experienced that. And he remembered it. And I'm sure that the memory of what it had once been was crushingly bitter for him now. Before the fall, work in the garden had been all joy. Now it was painful. It was hard. There were thorns and thistles. See, sweat, three steps forward and then sliding two steps back. In a jealous rage, their first son killed his younger brother. Broken nature and broken humanity was everywhere that they looked. Pastor Calvin Miller wrote a little book titled The Singer, which is a poetic retelling of the gospel story. Now, in this book, Jesus is described as the singer and the gospel as his song. This is Miller's description of humanity after the fall. The new man aged and died, and dying grew a race of doubtful, death-owned, sickly men. And every child received the planet's scar and wept for love to come and reign. And then to heal hate-sickened life both wide and far. We're naked, cried the new men in their shame. They really were a race of piteous things who had no name. 
They died absurdly whimpering for life. They probed their sin for rationality. Self-murdered self in endless hopeless strife. And holiness slept with indecency. All birth was but the prelude unto death. And every cradle swung above a grave. The sun made weary trips from east to west. Time found no shore and culture screamed and raved. The world in peaceless orbits sped along and waited for the singer and his song. Well, the verses that, that we started with this morning from Jeremiah 29 were written during a time of a long list of kings of Israel, some of whom served the Lord, but most of whom didn't. Because of their unfaithfulness to God, he had lifted his hand of protection from them. He had allowed the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, to lay siege to and then ultimately to destroy Jerusalem and its temple. Then Nebuchadnezzar took most of God's people with him back to Babylon as captives. Psalm 137 expresses the longing and the pain that the people of God felt in that foreign place. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Can you hear the longing in that? See, the question, how long, O Lord, is a question that gets repeated often in the Old Testament. The exiled people remembering God from this, this new home in a foreign place, longed for restoration. But what God said to them through Jeremiah was this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He tells them to dig in for the long haul. Not that Babylon will be their final destination. In verse 10, he tells them that in 70 years, he's going to restore them back to their homeland. But in the meantime... They're not to be in a holding pattern, scowling at their captors, resenting the fact that they find themselves in a foreign place. He commands them to actually seek the welfare of this foreign people who conquered them and to whom they have been exiled. If you want to see this in action, read the book of Daniel. So Daniel was a young man when Jerusalem fell and he was taken captive uh, back to Babylon, Daniel had probably lost family in that siege of Jerusalem, but he took Jeremiah's words seriously, and he did an amazing job of wholeheartedly loving his captors and serving God in that hostile place. So God's people found themselves in this in-between place, commanded to love this foreign city well, commanded to actually love their captors knowing that it was not really the home that they longed for and to which they would someday return, still longing for the restoration of all that God had promised them. 
Well, ultimately, the exiles were brought back to Jerusalem. Ezra saw the, oversaw the restoration of the temple, and Nehemiah led the rebuilding of the city walls around Jerusalem. Psalm 126 describes their joy as God was restoring them to the land. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. See, they'd been brought back to the land just as the Lord had promised them. But there was a catch. If you read the rest of Psalm 126, you'll hear that even after they came back to their homeland, there was a longing for something more, a longing for something else. So have you ever had this experience where you think that if you only had this one thing, or if you could only go to this one place, then you would be made complete. See, it's the, the thing that would be the fulfillment of what you really need for your happiness. And then you got that thing, or you went to that place, and it was good, and it was enjoyable, but it didn't fill that longing in you like you thought it would. See, you experience satisfaction and dissatisfaction at the same time. So that sense of longing stays with us. We long for something outside what we can experience in this world and in this life, which brings us to our third and our final movement today, the restoration of all things, the fullness of joy. On June the 6th, 1944, all along the French coast, the Allied forces began the invasion of Europe. 350,000 soldiers and sailors, 7,000 ships, and 2,400 aircraft were all deployed in Operation Overlord, which we know today as the D-Day invasion. It was the largest air and naval amphibious assault the world has ever seen, still. Time was of the essence. Tens of millions of people were in bondage in Europe under the Axis powers, while thousands more were daily being executed in concentration camps scattered all across Europe. But as high as the stakes were in June of 1944, and as many men and as much equipment as was mobilized there, D-Day pales in comparison with what had already happened 2,000 years earlier in a stable in Bethlehem. God had launched his own D-Day invasion, one that would liberate not only all of humanity, but all of nature as well. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So his invasion began with his own son, fully God, and at the same time, fully man, being born a baby in a stable to a poor peasant girl. See? The only witnesses that were there that night were not kings. They weren't religious leaders. They weren't anybody important as the world counts importance. See? They were shepherds, the lowest of the low. Listen to Luke's account of what happened that night. 
Now shepherds were in that region and were keeping watch over their flocks. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone upon them, and they feared greatly. And the angel said, Do not fear, for behold, I declare good news to you, a great joy which shall be for all the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David the Deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And from that quiet calm, suddenly great armies of heaven appeared with the angel. And while shouting praises to God, they were saying, Glory to God in heaven and upon earth, peace, good news to the children of men. See, this is the first time that we've seen these shepherds. But it's not the first time that we've seen these angels, the great army of heaven. They were the same ones who were there when the stars were singing together for joy as the earth was being made. These angelic warriors had shouted for joy in the beginning, and now they're doing it again as the invasion gets underway. Well, God's invasion of our brokenness had begun, and it would culminate 33 years later with Jesus dying on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. His resurrection three days later and his ascension back to the Father would seal the victory. So, where do we find ourselves in this today? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are enough to buy the redemption of every man, woman, and child that's ever been born. Peter wrote that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Ezekiel 33 says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. That's God's intention towards mankind. But we do see people perishing today, not ever choosing to turn back from their broken, sinful lifestyles. So like those Jewish exiles in Babylon, we find ourselves in our own in-between place, knowing that the outcome of this war is already settled, but not yet seeing the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. So God has called us to seek the welfare of this city where we're exiles. But let's be clear. It's the people in the city that the Father loves. See, they're the ones that we're called to pray for, to love, and to lay down our lives for. Um, he's not that concerned with the 88 square miles of real estate here, okay? Uh, he's after the ones that his son died for. So we're called to go all in, loving people in this city, while at the same time longing for our true home, the place that we were made for but have not yet seen. So we're here experiencing longing. But did you know that the Bible says that all of creation is also longing? And what it's longing for might surprise you. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So all of creation is longing for us. See? All of creation is longing for us to step up and be used by God for his purposes in the here and the now to bring restoration 
to the creation that was shattered in the fall. Well, part of our problem today is that we don't have much of an idea of what eternity looks like. We've been sold a caricature that pictures eternity as fat, winged babies with harps on pink clouds. And uh, I don't know about you, but that just doesn't sound that interesting to me, you know. Um, so rather than allowing ourselves um, our longing to spur us on uh, to live like the exiles that we really are, we've often just settled comfortably into our comfortable, miserable lives here on earth. I want you to remember hearing a Baptist pastor say, now that we have air conditioning in our churches, we don't preach as much about hell. See? That would be funny, except it's not. See? If we lose the reality of eternal judgment and eternal reward, we'll live sloppy, mediocre lives. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no vision, the people live carelessly. Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonican church, spent a whole chapter talking about the hope that we have for eternity. He ends up that chapter by saying this, Encourage one another with these words. So we need to be encouraging one another to invest our lives serving others here. That's real. But we also need to be spurring one another on about the joy that awaits us beyond this life. See, the Garden of Eden was not a precious moment's caricature. And neither will God's restoration of all things be a caricature either. That first man and that first woman had work to do. Work that brought them joy without the frustrations that we experience today in our work. C.S. Lewis has really helped me with my view of what lies before us. Um, not the details. He didn't know those either. But the essence of who God is. With the understanding that he is um, not only a God who creates, but he's also a God who wants us to be his co-workers his co-creators. See, he wants to do stuff with us now and in the future. Lewis's books, Paralandra, um, The Last Battle, um, The Great Divorce, see, they've all helped to stir excitement in me for what the Father has for us to do in this life and forever. But now we find ourselves in the middle of a mop-up operation for a war that's already been won. We're all in here on this mission, but we long for the day when all the enemies we struggle against in ourselves and for other people, things like abuse, injustice, sickness, disease, death, and a host of other things we could name. See, those things are vanquished once and for all. We long for these verses in Revelation that David shared with us last week, not only to be our hope, but also our joyful experience. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. The dwelling place of God is with man. He is our God and we are his people. He will wipe away every tear, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. In the middle of the city, is the tree of life. See, that's the same tree of life that was in the middle of the garden that the first man and the first woman passed on. See, we get to eat from that.
in the next garden. C.S. Lewis in the last paragraph of the last chapter of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia finishes the series in a way that should encourage us all who long for the Lord's coming. In the story, the characters that we have come to know and love in the books uh, have persevered to the end. See, they faithfully fought their last battle, and Lewis concludes the book saying this, And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, uh, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, Lord, for the love that you've poured out on us in your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that as we look back to what you did in those first days of creation, we can catch a glimpse of what you have in store for us, the fullness of joy, Lord. We're grateful that as we have responded to you, that you have adopted us as children into your family. Oh Lord, I pray for all my friends in this room who have not made that decision to go all in with you. Help each of us, Lord, to be overwhelmed by your love, your grace, your mercy, and your power. And Father, for those of us that have committed to you, Lord, to follow you no matter what, I pray, Lord, that we would not be lulled to sleep by the convenience of this broken world. Lord, we were designed for eternal things, and I pray we'll keep our eyes on the prize, which is you, Lord. No other prize but you. We ask all these things, Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, to whom belongs all praise, all glory, and all honor. Amen. Amen.